Hello and welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. I am your host, Joshua David Stein, joined by... Jason Gay, Joshua's co-host? Am I co-host? Still, yeah. Capital C or a small c? <laughs> small c, capital okay, I H. I can take it, it's fine. All right, good. I don't know if you've noticed this, but recently I feel like there's been an explosion of really compelling therapist content out there. Like New York Magazine has, the, like, Ask Your Therapist. There's that woman, Esther Perel, who has yeah. a podcast, which is sure. good. Um, but kind of like the OG of that whole genre is this woman, Lori Gottlieb. Yeah. Um, she's a columnist for The Atlantic. She has a column called Dear Therapist. Um, she just came out with a book called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, a Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. And it's dope. It's a very good book. <laughs> uh, I stayed up all last night reading most of it. Very compelling. It's like got case studies. It's got stuff on her own life. It's always better when the book is great, right? Have you ever had to interview people when you didn't really care for their book? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> yes, sucks. I, have. And I know. It's so much better when you love the book, isn't it? Or like I interviewed Zac Efron um, okay. <laughs> after that movie, The Paperboy, All right. which is famous only because he pees on Nicole Kidman. Oh, jeez. Do you remember that? Nah, didn't see well, it. Well, she did have like jellyfish stings. Anyway, it was a terrible- Does that t- work? It was great. It was, that was a good scene. But that was like the only good scene. Yeah, it's a okay. terrible movie, but I talked to him anyway. And it was it was awkward. Yeah, it's it's always better when the product is when the product shines. This product shines. Um, you and I have both been in therapy for years. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I'm always wondering like what is my therapist thinking about <laughs> yeah, me? Sure. Does she like me? Find me boring. Am I boring? Am I just spinning my she like my sneakers. Why is her Georgia O'Keeffe painting crooked? Is that like a <laughs> test? <laughs> is she looking at the clock? Why are there so many African masks in the lobby? <laughs> is that a 1975 copy of Life magazine <laughs> yeah. in the waiting room? <laughs> Four to the city, drop dead. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're going to talk to Lori today, and I could be more excited. I'm a fan of hers. Um... I'm a fan of her writing and a fan of her storytelling, and I have a lot of questions. Let's get started. Welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello? Hey, Lori. Hey. Um, my name is Joshua. That's Jason, the other voice. Hi. Okay. And Hi. You guys sound, like, eerily alike. Yeah, well, it's kind of a split yeah. personality thing we got going. There's only one huh. of us. It'll <laughs> be interesting. Yeah, this is a whole, you're already diagnosing us. Great. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to tell the two of you apart. But it, whatever, you'll both say interesting things and I'll answer. Hopefully. I'm the sad one. Jason is a playful one. <laughs> okay, got it. It's like good cop, bad cop, but like depressed and happy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah that's it. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, congratulations on the book. Maybe you should talk to someone. Um, Thank you. Out in April, I've been reading it. It's a, uh, it's it's like the best of Oliver Sacks mixed with the best of Lori Gottlieb. Lori Gottlieb, yeah, exactly. Wow, uh, that's quite a compliment. Thank you. Yeah, you still got room on the cover for the blurb. The be- <laughs> <laughs> the I wish. <laughs> Too bad it's already it's already in uh, production. <laughs> Um, well, the subtitle of the book is A Therapist, Her Therapist, and, uh, and Our Lives Revealed. Um, and just in brief for our listeners, it kind of toggles between your experience with your clients that you see in your practice, 
your experience with your own therapist, a dude named Wendell, and your experience outside of therapy in your life. So we're a podcast about being a dad and struggles and triumphs of fatherhood. I think dads face a certain like uh, challenge or block about therapy or going to therapy. And so we kind of want to, not Jason and I, we've been in therapy a lot <laughs> for years and years yeah, combined. I, I, I have platinum status. <laughs> um, but I wanted, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience with um, men's approach to therapy or, you know, insecurities yeah. about going and that kind of thing. That's such a great question. Um, you know, it's interesting because often when men come to see me, they'll say things like, I've never told anybody this before. Um, and I'm the first person who's hearing it. They, they haven't told their partners. They haven't told, you know, friends, um, family members. And women will usually say something like, as I was telling my mom the other day, hmm. or, you know, as I was telling my sister or my best friend, yeah. um, they, they talk about some of these experiences or they, they tend to feel like they have more permission to do so. It's more socially acceptable. And I think that for men talking about their emotions and talking about their struggles, um, they don't know how it's going to be received. And so they just kind of keep it to themselves in general. Do you feel like, so, both men and women, people who say, I've said this to my mom yesterday, and people who say, I've never told anyone, they're, they're both on your couch. Um, yeah. But do you see that it has been helpful, or can you have, do you have a read on whether it's been helpful for the people who have been able to talk to someone outside of the therapeutic context, or is it kind of mm, sort of minimally effective? Well, I don't think that the other person helps them to see things the same way that a therapist would. So, you know, usually your friend will just back you up. Yeah, you're right. Your boss yeah. is terrible. You know, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, whereas a therapist will really help you see the situation from a more macro perspective about, you know, what are you doing? What is the other person doing? What's going on relationally with you? What's going on emotionally with you? So it's a different experience. Um, but I think what, what it does in telling other people, um, it's not that you have to tell other people that it's necessarily a good thing. It's just that women tend to know that they have that permission. Mm. And men really keep a lot inside. And what happens is they feel alone in their problems. They feel like maybe they're the only one experiencing this. They don't know how universal their experience is, even yeah. if the specifics are unique to them. And I think that that creates a lot of shame and isolation. Mm. I've found in my experience, this is Jason, uh, that my therapy experience has, you know, become more focused and, and I don't want to say urgent, but just feels very, very practical and useful in this respect, becoming a parent, um, because yeah. you can now start to draw lines from, you know, your own behavior and anxieties and, uh, you know interest to your children and they're very obvious sometimes uh but it feels as important now as it's ever felt um and i'm curious if that changes the dynamic you must have had clients along the way who've become parents both men and women and what that does to a therapist relationship um i think what that does is it really helps people to see themselves in a new way. Kids yeah. will hold up a mirror to you in a way <laughs> that, true. as you guys know, that no one else will. Um, and there's a great 
paper called Ghosts in the, Nur- in the Nursery that I highly recommend to people, um, Selma Freiburg, that was written you know decades ago, but that um, that really talks about how we carry our own childhoods with us into the way that we parent. Yeah. And My therapist always talks about, about um, like, I hate it when she does it. She's like, what would little Josh say? What would you say to little Josh? I'm like, it's, first of all, it's Joshua. <laughs> it's like, well, I wouldn't say anything to him. He deserves to be in a corner and listen to. Just kidding. <laughs> no, uh, one of the quotes you say in your book and in that Atlantic uh piece from 2011 jason oh yeah i i have it at my fingertips but it has one of those titles that uh scared the pants off me candidly you know um your atlantic cover story that how to land your kid in therapy that's yeah, right that one that's <laughs> yes. the one we call that a traffic stopper you yeah. know just you're walking past the newsstand you're like wow i gotta read that right now um but the quote is from the poet uh philip larkin they fuck you up your mom and dad they may not mean to but they do that's in your book too Ironically, my father, who I don't speak to, texted that to me a couple of weeks ago, which I just deleted mm. immediately. Because um, <laughs> it's like, yeah, great. Um, wait, where was... Fuck. What was I saying? He was sending you an olive branch. Yeah, I burned it. <laughs> to keep warm from the cold emotional deathscape of my soul. But what... You uh, were getting at the idea of... Oh, your- yeah, yeah, of, of that essay. Um my therapist gave me a, a a book that was called Parenting from the Inside Out. And oh, great book. Uh-huh. It, that book changed my life because it's so much what you were just saying that is like all that undi- all those undigested issues that you carried with you and have carried with you, that's what gets passed down. The the things you haven't worked out. That was a right. um massive wake up call for me. Massive. Right. And the thing is that we don't even realize it. And I think that's that's what I think therapy can help parents do is to understand more about why do I have that reaction, you know, when my child does this? Um, why do I feel this is a parent? I wasn't expecting that. Or I, I, I made a vow to myself that I would be very different from my parents and then look at, you know, wait, I, I'm seeing myself in this. Um, you know, or, or, you, or, you know, even if you had, you know, parents that you want to emulate, um, you know, kids will bring up all kinds of issues um, and, and really make you look at yourself. How about, I mean, you have a son who you write about in the book. I do, yes. How has, and he is, I'm sure, older now than when you wrote the book. I don't know, how old is he now? I don't know if you share in, that. In the in the book, he's eight and he's now 13. How, and now, so now you have a, a, a teenager living yeah. in your house. Just turned 13, right. How does that experience, what, what do you bring from that to the couch? Um, you mean as a therapist? As or a therapist. Mean- I guess I mean armchair, not couch. Uh, um, I, um, you know, I, I think some people say, some people who come want to know if they're, if they're dealing with parenting issues. They want to know if you have a kid. And while I don't think you have to have a kid to know how to help people, just like, you don't have to be married to help couples or you don't have to have cancer to help a cancer patient. Um, but I do think that um, there's something about, you know, when people are talking about their struggles, I really get it, <laughs> you know, yeah. as, a, as a parent. I think I really, get, I really get the experience of wanting to do right by your kid and also all of the, all of the nuances of being a parent. 
I think that those are those are you know it's it's challenging. It's it's challenging and it's life changing, um, and I think that people really need to be able to talk about it. There's so much I think judgment out in the world around whether people are doing things quote unquote right, and everybody's got an opinion, and parents need to learn to trust themselves and to understand themselves. Um, and they think that it's hard to do with all of the noise out there. Well, I think that I'm in that part in your book where you are talking, you've just admitted to Wendell that uh, it's not just that your boyfriend left that's problem. That's why you're having a hard time, but you were supposed to write this book, uh, and the first book you were supposed to write was going to give you a roof over your head for years and years to come, and that was based on that Atlantic article about parenting. Right. And basically what you said, uh, which I think is um, laudable, is, look, the world doesn't need more noise out there about how to parent, especially because kind of, if I'm understanding it correctly, the gist of that article is, um, you know, the more the more you try to insulate your kid, the, the, more, the heavier the hand you have in terms of trying to steer them into a path of no suffering, the more likely it is that when they do face adversity and suffering, they won't be resilient. Right, right. And, and you know, there are some great books out there about that, um, but I didn't feel like that's where my heart was. I didn't feel like... You know, I, I quote the New Yorker in the book. There's a there was a piece in the New Yorker saying like another parenting book at this point would just be cruel. Um, <laughs> where you know I think parents get really anxious for good reason. Um, but you know, and then they read all of these books that say exactly the same thing, which is relax, <laughs> let your kid make mistakes, let your you know relax that you know don't don't try to micromanage every aspect of your children's lives. And, um, and I didn't feel like that I didn't, I, you know, I, I could, I could certainly eke a book out of that, but, but I didn't, I felt like there was something for me, for me personally, it's not a comment on parenting books. It's a comment on, I didn't, I didn't feel like I want that that would be a service to parents. I felt like my article was a service to parents that yeah. it was sort of gave them something that, that, you know, I would give in the therapy room that now I could give to a wider audience. Um, but I didn't think that an entire book about that would, would really be doing them a service. I thought it would be doing them a disservice by sort of stoking their anxiety and, and telling them something they already know. So I wanted to write something more about adults because I feel like as parents, we neglect ourselves as adults. Yeah. And in maybe you should talk to someone, you know, there are parents in the book. I mean, several of the John. people that I write about are parents, John and, and, and Rita, you know, with her estranged adult children, um, John with his young children, and let's not give away you know, what we know about them. Um, but um, there's a shock in there about you know him as a parent that I, I really came out of left field that I had not seen coming. Um, that really you know gave me a whole new window into who he was as a dad, um, and he just as a, you know like the loveliness of his himself as a dad, which I wasn't expecting at all, because he, he, you know, starts off as, I think he's kind of an asshole, and he's kind of like a narcissistic jerk, and um, and then he becomes this person that I really come to, to you know, like and admire and, and really feel, you know, this incredible warmth toward. One thing that's very instructive is just the idea of hearing the inner dialogue of someone in your position. I think a lot of people 
even people who have done therapy for a long time, there's just this element of mystery. Like, what are they really yes. thinking behind the scenes? <laughs> also, do they like me? Do they, do they really like me? Are they falling asleep? <laughs> um, and, and, and how do you balance that? Because obviously, you know, you have, you know, restrictions about how you can disclose things and so on. But, but it's incredibly helpful to actually hear sort of the human side of your chair in that, in that arrangement. Right, right. And I, I, I think that, you know, what I wanted to do by showing myself in therapy at the same time that I was providing therapy um, was that I wanted to show that I, I, as a patient, react very similarly to the way that my patients react to me. So I want my therapist to like me. When I see someone in the waiting room when I'm leaving, I'm like, does he, you know, is her, does he look forward to her sessions more than mine? Yes. Um, you know, I'm curious about the other patients. Like, what was that woman crying about when she left? You know? um, I ask those same know, questions. Yeah. Right? Yeah, we all, we all have these questions because it's a very... In, in certain ways, it's a very one-sided relationship because I know a lot about these people's lives and they don't know a lot about mine. Yeah. But on the, uh, you know, on the other hand, it's not one-sided at all. It's one of the most, I think, intimate relationships emotionally that a person can have yeah. with your therapist. It's not, it's not at all one-sided in the room in that way. I think that there's, there's such an incredible human connection happening that really only happens in that space. But I have to say, so I am in like a lot of therapy for now. I do like individual and then I have a group uh, DBT therapy. But in my um, individual therapy, I'm really struggling. I don't know. Now it's a therapy session. <laughs> it's a therapy about therapy. <laughs> I'm really struggling sort of with the idea that like, look, I really like this lady, Julia. She's my therapist. She's super good. And I do feel like emotionally intimate with her, right? Mm -hmm. But then also at the end of every 45-minute uh, long session, um, well, then I get a invoice, and it's $200, which is cool. Um, and so it – and then I pay it, and then I'm, I don't have $200 anymore. And it's like uh, I'm having a hard time f with the fact that it's emotionally intimate, and it is real – but it's also within the structure of kind of commerce. Commerce. Yeah. It makes me feel really uncomfortable. Hmm. And it yeah. And it it introduces this element, which of course is more about me than anything else, of like insecurity. Like is she only listening? Of or course is it, is it performance on her end. Right. So right, like she so, is literally only listening to me because I'm paying her two hundred dollars. Yeah. And, and I the, and I want to tell you why that's not true. Okay. Um because we don't see patients that we don't think we can help and that we don't that we don't like on some level. That's interesting. Um, and so I, I talk about that in the book, you know, that a supervisor said to me early on, you know, like, you know, there's something likable about everyone. And I really doubted that. I really thought <laughs> that can't be true. There are lots of unlikable people in the wow. world. Um, but once you get to know somebody um, deeply, you know, when you really get to, to understand them, who they are as a person, if you hear their stories and, you know, like, what is the story of this person's life? You can't help but like them. Or if they really won't reveal their story to you, if they really won't get in there with you, um, you know, maybe that's not the right fit. There is, there are patients that, you know, I write about that in the book where you, you break up with them, right? Because, yeah. because you don't want to waste their time or their money and you want to, you want them to get help in the right place. And so, you know, people always worry, you know, is my therapist bored and just listening because, you know, they're trying to get through the hour. 
boring patients, I talk about this too, and, and maybe you should talk to someone, that boring patients are not the ones who are telling you what seem like the minutia of their life, right? Um, yeah. Boring patients are the ones who keep you at bay. Boring patients are the ones who go off on a million different tangents and can't stay focused on something deeper. Or they boring- have their story and they're not open to any revision. Right. They're not flexible with their story. They think that their story is the only version of the story. And, you know, I'm a writer and a therapist, and and I pretty much do the same thing in each job, which is that I edit people's stories. When they come into me, I want them to really think about, you know, is the protagonist going in circles or is the protagonist moving forward? Um, Who are the minor characters? Who are the major characters? And do we need to kind of switch around who some of those people are? Um, Do the plot points reveal a theme? And if so, let's look at that theme. So it's really about taking someone's story and and saying, let's look at it from these other perspectives. And so I don't don't think that your therapist is sitting there going like, oh, gosh, what do I have to buy at Trader Joe's later? You know, (laughs) I, 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 I mean, I think that one thing about therapy is that being a therapist is it's hard work. It's hard work for the patients, for sure. Um, but it's also hard work for the therapist because you're so hyper-focused in the session that you know how when you're working on your computer, you can let your thoughts drift a little bit and you can think about Twitter, you know, whatever you want to think about. Um, you can't do that in a therapy session. I right. think about that all the time, the idea that a therapist not only is very, very focused within the session, but then immediately jumps to another session and has to be focused again. I mean, there requires, I imagine the requirement of mental discipline there is, is significant. Right. You know, and it depends on on how you set up your practice, but I have about 10 minutes between each session, and I'm usually writing a chart note Mm. um, in that 10 minutes and scarfing down food and getting a drink of water um, and checking my lipstick after the food. Mine's like Um, a hot dog stand. It's just one after the next. Boom, 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 boom. But I think that, you know, I think we have limits, right? So I I won't schedule more than like, I would say my max is five in a Mm -hmm. row Mm -hmm. um, without a break. Um, so I think, you know, I think that, you know, I know there are people who just go all day and, but I, I need a break because I think that I want people to have, you know, I don't want to come out of a session and think that wasn't my finest hour. I don't want to do that. You had talked about what you bring from being a writer into your practice, and I wonder what you bring from your practice into being a writer. And I ask that because, say you see five patients back-to-back, you're getting five peeks into the deepest recesses of five people's souls and the rich stories there. One of the things I love about your book is the stories on the surface are sort of prosaic, But when you really understand the currents of emotion underneath them, they're so compelling. And like, it's not just that you're creating stories for them, but you're also hearing all of these narratives. Right. Um, And so, you know, I think writing and therapy are similar in that way, because I think as a writer, you want to find an emotional truth. And I think in the therapy room, you're, you're hearing emotional truth. And the beauty of it. I mean, I think that people think of therapy, too, as sort of this, like, doom and gloom, right? And so much 
so much triumph and hope and beauty um, are intermixed with all of the sort of messiness and complications of the human condition. Um, and I think that when we read a good book, whether it's nonfiction or novel, um, you know, it touches us in a certain way if it can, if it can reach that emotional place. So I think that you're right. They are, they are very similar that way. Jason, you're a writer. You're in therapy. I'm a writer. I'm in therapy. Lori, you are a writer in therapy and a therapist. I wonder, do you feel like because your job is writing stories that that makes it easier or more difficult for you to create a narrative for yourself? Candidly, I, I worry I, sometimes that I'm too, uh, I'm sorry, was this a question for me or for, yeah, Lori? No, for, for I, 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 I find that I'm, uh, I worry sometimes that I'm a little too clever, like that I know how to tell a story by now and that I can frame a story, an anecdote, an episode that I want to have, you know, a discussion about in a way that is you know, obviously told from my perspective, but rendered very charitably toward myself and yeah. might not be the most accurate representation of it. And I, and I worry a little bit about that candidly, that, I, that I'm, I'm not giving the full portrait that I need to give. And this sort of dovetails with a question I want to ask Lori, which is that so, I, I, I am always looking for like comparisons to like physical and mental health. I write about sports for a living and I find sometimes like there's a analog between like working out and therapy in that you do have to do the hard work. You know, you do have to do the heavy lifting and you do have to actually do the exercise as dictated. And if you just sort of stick to the easy stuff, you know, you can do, well, you're just going to get diminishing returns. And I'm curious if you find that to be the case. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, and I think, I think tying that into the, you know, your earlier question about, um, you know, our stories and our, our, how accurate they are. Um, you know, we're all unreliable narrators. <laughs> and, and I think that one thing therapy does is if you're just, if you're just going every week and telling your unreliable story, um, you know, that's like the athlete who's, who's not, um, you know, who's just like, I'll just do the easy shots that I know how to do, yeah. but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like stretch myself. Just playing um, against high school. Really. <laughs> Right, right. And so, but, but, you know, the thing about being an unreliable narrator is that, is that it's good to know that we, that we are, because especially when going back to parenting, when you're, you know, parenting with someone, when you're co-parenting, um, you have to remember that there's two people there and that your version of events is, you know, it's not, it's not that people are, are trying to mislead other people. It's that we really do see things through a very particular lens. And so when the person that you're trying to parent with, you know, sees things differently, you have to remember that, that both of you need to have more flexibility, that both of you need to be able to see the other person's perspective yeah. because it is there and you're blinded to it. And we're blinded to ourselves. We're blinded to, you know, all, I think, you know, the main thing that therapy does is it helps you see your blind spots. Yeah. It helps you see, you know, the things that you can't see that everyone else can see very clearly about you. That's interesting. Yeah. I've been in therapy since I was like eight on and off, right? I'm 38 now. I had a, I'm American and was raised Jewish. I don't know if that's material or, or immaterial. I had a partner. North American? <laughs> yeah. Northeastern American from Philadelphia. Tri-state area, which includes Pennsylvania. Um, I 
had a partner who was not from it was Latin American, South American, mm, Central wherever, American. No, the other one, South. Um, had never been in therapy, and whenever I tried to suggest therapy, to, you know, couples therapy or individuals, she would just say like, "I'm why, why, How is having another person in the room going to change anything?" And it was so frustrating for me because I'd grown up just buying into the project of therapy naturally because I'd been raised that way. Then to be confronted with another viewpoint that was just like, that's what is a role that the therapist is just another person. And I just couldn't find a rejoinder that seemed uh, persuasive enough. Well, with couples often, um, you know, they're, they're stuck. You know, there's something that they're, they're stuck. They, there's something that's not working right and they need to understand it and they're not going to understand it by trying to slam their perspective down the other person's throat. That just doesn't happen. Um, so having somebody else to kind of help them step back and kind of see each other a little bit differently often can help a great deal. Yeah. I think part of it is that I am very comfortable with people having jobs like Jason, you're my co-host, right? And a, and a person and a full human, wonderful human Thank being, you, but you're a co-host. Thank you. And like my therapist is my therapist and like I, people have their roles. Whereas my partner was like much more holistic. Like you are a person mm -hmm. and this is another person. Mm -hmm. So for them, a therapist is another person. Right. And like I can reveal my innermost secrets on air or anywhere. Right. Um, that wasn't her thing. That was not like, it was like, how could I betray my privacy to another person? I was like, well, that person's job is to hear. I think one thing, and I would say this to anybody listening, that therapy, you know, you, you, you ought to think of it as like, I don't know what the equivalent is of, you know, you go to something and it's like first class free, you know, like I, I always think it's worth a try. <laughs> I, you know, and, and, and couples therapy is something I've done in the past. Um, and been reasonably skeptical of it entering it, but just the exercise of articulating oneself in front of a professional yeah. with your partner and then hearing your partner articulate themselves is very helpful. I mean, it doesn't seem to be too much net negative from that, even if you don't decide it's something for you to do all the time. I think just right. having I that think third person in the room for me was incredibly helpful. Yeah. It like, yeah. I, I think the main questions that therapy helps people answer, whether they're, you know, coming alone or coming in a couple or coming in a family is, you know, it's, it's who am I, what do I want and what's getting in my way. Yeah. And, you know, and those, those, <laughs> yeah, those three. Apply, apply to couples yeah. um, because, because a lot of times, you know, especially when they become parents, what, what are their, how do their roles change? What do they want? Who are they? Um, and what's, what's getting in their way? I want to get under the hood for a second with you a question about parenting specifically, which is that I worry sometimes that, you know, we live in a world now where everything is, you know, open to diagnosis, you know, every sort of behavior, every sort of action, you know, is open for interpretation and diagnosis. And we're very reluctant to kind of just say like, well, you know, that's what being five or being 40 is all about. Um, and so I get nervous 
sometimes with my wife about the idea of thinking or interpreting too much out of a child behavior, whether it's, you know, aggression or, um, you know, something super positive, like, you know, oh boy, he's going to be a genius uh, or anything. And I just, I'm trying to like, yeah. Stay arm's length from any sort of like broad interpret interpretation about child behavior. I'm curious if that's something you encounter. Or pathologizing it. Yeah, pathologizing, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that a lot of parents futurize too much. Futurize? They, okay. Futurize. I like that well, word. Well, I just made that word up. Oh, I, I like it. That's, like, that's yours. Like, that's yours. You own it, okay? It's like just, Betty Davis eyes, future eyes. Yes. <laughs> um, I feel like that, you know, they see they see something going on with their kid, and all of a sudden they've, like, spun it into a story about what's going to happen when they're a teenager and what's going to happen <laughs> yeah. when they're in their 20s and what's yeah. going to happen as an, later in adulthood. Yeah. Um, as opposed to just, oh, this is, let's, let's try to understand what's going on with my kid right now. Yeah. You know, kids often will communicate through their behaviors instead of their words because, um, they don't have the emotional vocabulary necessarily, yeah. and they don't get a lot of modeling um, in you know out in the world. I hope they do at home about um, sort of you know what is it that you're feeling right now. Um, and by the way, even being you know the child of a therapist, I would say you know the good news is that nothing gets sort of shoved under the rug, but the bad news is that you'll be screwed up anyway. <laughs> and so. Um, you know, even in a, in a home where people are very sort of aware of, of emotions, um, you know, kids, kids don't really have that language all the time. And they also have less, you know, they don't have as much um, impulse control as we tend to have as adults, at least we can in public, and, you know, as opposed to the privacy of wherever. And so, um, you know, kids will act in certain ways that may seem extreme to us or may all of a sudden, you know, or, you know, they're acting in a certain way and say you have depression and your child is sad, that parent will think, oh, my God, my kid's afflicted with lifelong yeah, depression. Yeah. Um, or, you know, anxiety, a parent who, who, you know, struggles with anxiety and their kid gets very anxious about, you know, something, tests or, you know, whatever situations. Oh, my God, my kid's inherited my anxiety. Um, what about and, throwing rocks? We're in the throwing rock phase. <laughs> in the throwing rock phase. You know, why? Why is your why is your kid throwing rocks? You know, that's the thing to say to your kid. Like, you know, what? what why did you throw the rock? Um, yeah. And just see what they say. Because it's Either. fun is usually yeah. the answer. <laughs> it's well, fun yeah. to throw a rock and see what you know, happens. How old's old your child? I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old, so we're early days. Well, that's fun, you know, throwing a rock. It's science. It's, you know, wait, what happens if I throw the rock? But then, you know, you can talk to them about, well, we want to make sure that we don't hurt anybody. And so we want to be careful where we throw the rock. And we want to make sure we don't take rocks from other people's gardens because those are their gardens. And Yeah, Achilles is, my my seven-year-old's into punching, and he's like, and he punches me. He's like, I really like punching. I just want to punch something. And so I was trying to explain to him that Martin Buber... Uh, wrote a book and it's about I and thou relationships that you shouldn't see other people as objects, but he wasn't buying and he just punched me again. <laughs> um, before, yeah. before you, but, you know, that, it's like planting the seeds of, you know, well, you know, you just because, you know, and it's hard for kids to sometimes differentiate between something that feels fun to them yes. and then it's not necessarily f- doesn't feel fun to the other person. Yeah. I basically just said, don't punch things that have feelings. You can punch a pillow. Don't punch something. I like that. Yeah. I like that. I, I'm going to steal that. 
Um, I wanted to ask just for, uh, this is kind of like a public service, but for readers, but like, I know I struggled a ton with this when I was choosing a therapist. Um, but what would you recommend for guys who do want to talk to someone? Um, what kind of questions should they ask and maybe some guidance about finding the right therapist? Great idea. That's a great question. Um, there's actually research out there that shows that your relationship with your therapist is more important to the success of the therapy than the person, the therapist's training, what they specialize in, um, and the method that they use, right? So, so really, it's about the relationship. It's not to say that the training doesn't matter um, or, the, or the kind of, you know, the method that they use doesn't matter, but that, um, that you have to pick someone that you're comfortable with. And so, in, in my therapy practice, the first session is a consultation, and I think a lot of therapists do it that way, uh, where you come in and, you know, it's, it's an opportunity for both of you to see, is this really the right place for this person to be? Um, and, and, it's, um, and it's really useful. And so I think that guys, when they're looking for a therapist, should really use that session and say, how am I feeling in this session? Do I feel comfortable with this person? Or do I think I, you know, it's strange that first session, but do I think I might feel comfortable with this person? Okay, so for the record... No one's feelings are going to be hurt if after the consultation, the patient is like, you know what, I don't think it's a great fit. Uh, I'm going to keep looking. Right. And, and even if they were, right, because I can't speak for everybody, um, even if they were, it doesn't matter. You're, it's like going to a healthcare provider. <laughs> like if you, went to, if you went to like your intern, an internist, and you're like, I don't really feel comfortable with that internist, you'd get a different internist. Yeah. And you um, it, sweat. This is, you're, you're the customer here. You want help, and you need to go to a place where you feel like you're going to be helped. You're not there to worry about the therapist's feelings. I have a – sorry. No, you're, you're, you're there to, to figure out where you feel best. I have a little bit of an embarrassing admission with regard to searching for a therapist. Um, I went to one for a number of years that – what invariably it was far away it was a long trip to get to this therapist and by the time i got to the therapist's office i was so mad that i had to go <laughs> cross town switch 27 subways and just i was so irritated by the time i got there that i feel it affected my my sessions and then my most recent therapist is like right down the street it's like a two minute walk i'm so happy to go and is that shallow of me or is that actually something that could be considered no, that- that matters a lot yeah. because you have to you have to realize it's hard to get somewhere once a week, right? Yeah. It's it's not like your annual physical. You right. you actually you have to get there, and it's everybody's busy, and it's it's hard to get there. So you need to think about whether the logistics work for you. And if you've been sitting in traffic for an hour, you're taking you know various subways. It, it's that can really impact okay. how you feel. I when feel you better there. now. <laughs> I mean, my th- my thing with where my therapist is in Midtown is in a windowless room, which is fine. I don't need windows, but just that the, the, you have office and o- office after office in like a s- couple of square blocks of people just pouring out their hearts in these anonymous office buildings in Midtown, and that to me is both sort of what is that? It's just tender and heartbreaking, but not sad. Just like this is a human condition. People in rooms telling other people their fears? You know, that's interesting. So I'm not in New York, um, and I think that there's sort of the stereotype of, you know... The neurotic New Yorker. Right, right. 
but there are people all across the country um, who are finding another person that they can work through their struggles with. And yeah. that's what they're doing. And I think it's, you know, I think it's beautiful. And I, one thing I say in, um, in the book is that there's no hierarchy of pain. Mm. That I think that, yeah. you know, I think that as a therapist, that was a really important thing for me to understand, yeah. which is that, you know, in the book I have, you know, there's a, a young newlywed who's, who's, you know, dying of cancer. And then, you know, people come in with problems that pale in comparison. Right. Um, but pain is pain. You know, people are the babysitter stealing from me. Well, that's not, you know, and then people would say, oh, hashtag first world problems. Um, but really that you trusted this person with your child and that person has a relationship with your family and you have to work to put food on the table. And so you need a babysitter and now you can't trust the babysitter. And now your child's going to have to say goodbye to the babysitter. And it's a real issue. Um, so I, I, you know, I think that when you imagine all these people talking to somebody, I think it's great that they're talking to somebody. There are a lot of really unhealthy things that they can be doing with the way that they're struggling, and that's not one of them. Lori Gottlieb, thank you for hanging out with us for a little while. The book is uh, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. The answer is yes, and it's also a wonderful read. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you. This was so much fun. I'm so <laughs> glad. I, I love your podcast. Oh, thank you. Well, that's it for the Fatherly Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein. This show was produced by me and uh, Anthony Roman, executive produced by Andrew Berman. Thank you to Jason Gay, my lovely co-host, and Jesse Schultz for being the man at the board. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. If you don't like this podcast, keep your criticism to yourself. Thanks a lot, and talk to you next week.